Yeah, I got, the last time I was up here, as Brian said, I got to preach about the woman caught in adultery on Mother's Day. That was really exciting. And as he said today, I get the, another uplifting topic, and that's Judas's betrayal of Jesus. So um, why don't we start with prayer, because if you don't need it, I certainly do. So will you pray with me? Lord God, we're all here for a reason this morning. We probably don't even know what it is, but you brought us here for a reason. And I just ask that you use this time to fulfill your purpose in me and in everyone else here, that you would speak to us and somehow that as your word goes forward, it will not come back to you empty. And I just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. That's the text that we're looking at today. Our, our assigned text is John 13, verses 18 through 38. Um, and it, as I was preparing for this, I read that passage, and then I prayed over it. And then I read it again, and I prayed over it again, and I read it again, and prayed again, and again, and again, and again. And I was looking at it, and I said, well, this is the perfect text for me to deal with the subject of predestination. You know, was Judas, did Judas have a choice in this, or was he just... He, was he just born to betray Jesus and he had no choice in the matter at all? And, you know, I went back to John Calvin and his theories on predestination. And then I looked at uh, uh, Arminius, Jacobus Arminius, who came up with the idea, well, no, it was free will, but it was this and that and the other thing. And then Wesley, John Wesley picked up on it. And I knew that you guys would be really excited to hear about all of that. Because the, the Bible teacher in me kind of raised up and took over, and I was looking at that, and uh, somewhere in that process, something else came to mind that I thought I would point out to you today. And uh, it has nothing to do with predestination or free will, so you can rest rest easy there. We're not going to get into that today. Anyway, have you ever heard the phrase, the, the phrase, the devil is in the details? Well, I have been studying and reading the Bible and teaching from the Bible for many, many years, and I have come to the conclusion that it is God who is in the details. Not Satan. It is God. And the Bible, if you read through the Bible and you study the Bible, the Bible is such a detailed book. There are so many details in the Bible. When it comes to providing, you know, whether it's the... And you guys, a lot of you guys read the Bible all the way through that. Remember the genealogies that you read one after another after another? And God named names. Why would he do that? And who cares who they were? We're, We didn't know them. But he he went through every single name all the way through. They may not be important to us, but apparently they were important to God. And then, you know, you remember the 
when God told Moses how to build the tabernacle? You know, the tabernacle was just a tent, but it was a big tent, and it was a pretty fancy tent, and God put all these details in there that Moses would do with the pomegranates and the gold, and then the priestly garments, you remember those? With the ephah and all of the other stuff and all the colors and the, and the, and the tassels on the, on the uh, hem of it? I mean, God is a God of details. And all those laws he put out to these people, he went into serious detail on how they are to observe all of the laws that God puts in place. So, to, so again, the Bible teacher in me rose up and took over, and I apologize for that, but that's the way it's going to be today, all right? So today's message is going to be in two parts. Part one and part two. And the first part is a teaching about details. And then the second part, we'll finally get into the text that we're supposed to. So if you'll bear with me a little bit on part one, I'm going to give you a teaching that may or may not, you may, you may find it interesting, you may not. I don't know. But it has to do with the Last Supper. Because John 13 is a narrative on at least part of the Last Supper. And um, I, think it's, I think it's safe to assume that most of us here identify the Last Supper as being the Passover Seder meal. Would that be a safe assumption? This means yes, this means no. Is that a safe assumption? Yes. All right. Because and it's been the church tradition for over a thousand years. So I may be speaking heresy this morning, but that's okay because I've been called a heretic before. Anyway, so identifying the Last Supper as the Passover meal is what we've been taught, and it's what we all assume, and rightly so, with good reason, because in all three of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, la the, the Last Supper is described as the Passover meal. But if you remember now, those three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only one of them was present at that meal, the Last Supper, and that's Matthew. Mark got it secondhand, and so did Luke. But if you study the Gospel of John, which we're, which we're doing, when you run into John, you have some details that are a little bit troubling, I guess you could say. They contradict what we see in the other three Gospels. There's a contradiction. John indicates that the Lord's Supper took place before the Passover. I know, I just moved some cheese there, didn't I? John's gospel indicates that the Lord's Supper took place before the Passover. And the one thing that stands out in John's gospel, as compared to the other three gospels, and maybe you've noticed this as we go through, John pays a great deal of attention to chronology, to timelines. We see that in the first 10 or 11 chapters where John lays out the chronology of Jesus' ministry over the three years before. 
And then from chapters 12 through 18, 19, he, he lays out the chronology of Holy Week, the last week of Jesus's life. So John pays a great deal of attention to timelines and to chronology. And we see this as we follow his narrative through the, to the events of Holy Week. So let's quickly go through these a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, remember, the question is, was the Last Supper the Passover Seder meal? All right? Now, Kendall, last week, how many of you, he did a fantastic job, I thought. And, well, he, did, he dealt with the first 17 verses of John chapter 13, and he read through it, and he started, and, and we all heard the scripture read to us. But did you catch what he said or what is said in the very first verse? In fact, if you have your Bibles, open them up or your devices or whatever, because we're going to be jumping around a little bit. And I want you to see this. Did you catch what John says in the first verse of chapter 13? Apparently not. So let me read it to you. This is John chapter 13, verse 1. He says, now before the feast of the Passover. That's a little detail, but we, wouldn't, we, we don't catch it unless we're paying attention. And then the rest of that chapter 13 gives an account of the foot washing and some dialogue between Jesus and the disciples and Jesus and Judas. And then again, following the chronology, then chapters 14, 15, and 16, we see Jesus teaching the disciples. And by the way, that's all read in my Bible. And then chapter 17, we come to the high priestly prayer. And then afterwards, they go to Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. And that is the same night as the Lord's Supper. And then they took Jesus, oops, he was, uh, he, Jesus was arrested. They took, uh, they took him to the house of, well, they took him first to Annas, and then they took him to the house of Caiaphas, where he was beaten, and he was bound, and he was mocked, and they had a mock trial for him. You remember all that, right? Because that's the story. And then that's all described in chapter 18, the trial and all of that other stuff. And so this is the next morning now when we get to chapter 18, and I want you to see something there in chapter 18 in verse 28. Chapter 18, verse 28, it says this. Pay attention to the details. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. So this is the next morning. They led him, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. You see that? Let me read it to you again. They didn't go in because they didn't want to get defiled so that they would be able to eat the Passover. All right? So again, this is the next morning. Then, so Jesus goes in. And you have this interchange with Pilate, and Pilate brings him back out, and he says, I don't find anything wrong with this guy, but they all yell out, well, let's crucify him anyway. So now the narrative, we go into chapter 19, 
And we're in ver- and I want to read to you verse 13 and 14. It says, When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. Notice the timeline. Notice the detail. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. So Jesus was taken then. He was scourged. He was crucified. And he died. And we find these words in verse 31 of chapter 19. It says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, notice that, it was the day of preparation so that the body should not remain on the cross for on the Sabbath. Then it says this, for that Sabbath was a high day. It was a high, holy Sabbath. This is not the weekly Sabbath that they're talking about. It's the Passover Sabbath. And the Passover meal was the beginning of of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it was a high holy Sabbath. And it started at sundown, and it went through the sundown of the following day. And if you go back, again, if you pay attention to God, God is a God of detail. He is in the details. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, or Leviticus chapter 23, or Deuteronomy chapter 16, you will see God specifically lays out what is to be done for this feast. But the one thing that they cannot do is work. He says there is no work to be done here. So they can't work. Now, We all know how anal the Pharisees were when it came to God's laws, right? They were were very strict in their observations. If you go over to Israel today and you you observe the, the Orthodox Jews, they are the same way. They're very strict in their observation of things. In fact, they they complain about Jesus all the time and what he was doing on the Sabbath. So if the Last Supper was the Passover feast, think about this. If the Last Supper was the Passover feast, there was an awful lot that went on that night, wasn't there? They were were really busy that night. I mean, there were lighting the torches, there was going to, to Gethsemane, there was the arrest, there was the beating, there was the binding, and then they had this trial on that night. Seems like an awful lot of work going on, doesn't it? Finally, if the Last Supper was a Passover meal, why isn't there any mention of the lamb? I mean, it's the main dish. But all we have in all of the gospel accounts is just the bread and the wine. And if it was the Passover meal and they did have the lamb, why didn't Jesus mention it? Because Jesus could have easily used it to teach his disciples regarding the real purpose of what was about to transpire by using the Passover as an example. So was it? Was it the Passover meal or wasn't it? Question's been around for a long time. How would you answer it? You're probably sitting out there asking, well, why does it even matter? 
That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Because the answer is, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't. It has no bearing whatsoever in regards to your salvation or where you're going to spend eternity. And it has no practical application to your life as it is today. And it doesn't alter, by the way, it doesn't alter the significance or the eternal reality of the Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. doesn't change anything there either. But to me, what it does is it points out that if you just do a cursory reading of the Bible and you don't dig in deeper, you miss an awful lot. You miss the, if you miss the details, because the details tell you an awful lot about God and what he's like and his nature. You know, in the original Passover, for example, the, the, the lamb was slaughtered on the day of preparation. And then the meal took place at, after dark when the next day began. And if you look at, you know... If you think about the triumphal entry, and we, you know, Palm Sunday we call it, that was the, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, God says you, you select the lamb on the 10th day and you slaughter him at sundown or at twilight on the 14th day. If you go through the chronology in John's gospel, you'll find that Palm Sunday was lamb selection day. Lamb Selection Day, the 10th day of the month. Then the fourth day in the month, 14th of the month, the lamb. By the way, the lamb was not present at the Passover meal, and it's not mentioned in any of the Gospels. It's consumed on the 15th day. So details, folks. God is a God of detail. And if you just read over this stuff and you pass by it, you miss the details. Now, I just simply bring that up to you this morning and put, bring it to your attention because I want you to pay attention to details. You'll get a lot more out of the Bible if you read it, when you read it if you pay attention to the details. All right. Now, that, that was part one. <laughs> we'll go on to part two. And that's the text that we're supposed to be looking at today, and that's John chapter 13, verses 18 through 38, and I want to just read them to you, and maybe you'll pick up a detail or two as we go through, all right? Chapter chapter 13, verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. By the way, I think that comes from the Psalms. For now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. And testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. 
and they were reclining on Jesus' breast, and one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, um, it, or excuse me, there was reclining on Jesus' breast one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, gestured to him, that's the disciple, and said to him, tell us who it is him to, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus therefore answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table, that's all the guys there, knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Why did he say this to Judas? For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the feast. Oh, that's a detail. Did you catch it? For some were, were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the feast. Passover feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. As I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you, love, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. And Jesus said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. What an amazing scene this is, folks. Um, it's just incredible. John is describing here, and, and in reading the account, can you picture yourself being in the room, just standing off into the corner and watching as all this was taking place? And Jesus, as we see in verse 21, it says he's really troubled in his spirit because he's about to put in motion the events that are going to bring about his death. So he's troubled. And he states in verse 18, he tells them about to, that he's about to be betrayed. And, uh, oops, there it is. He's about to be betrayed, and that one of them is going to be the one who betrays him. Well, that shakes their trees a little bit, 
because they don't they, they can't even conceive of this they don't they're greatly perplexed the bible says they can't understand how this could happen or how any of them could be involved and they have no idea who it could be i mean i find that interesting because that, that's a detail in and of itself. They have no idea. Who could. Now, we know Judas is a devil because Jesus called him that back in chapter 6. He's been stealing money from the money box. But none of them would, none of them would even suspect it would be Judas. I find that very interesting. No one has a clue about that it could be Judas. And in verse 23, John, referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, and that's another story in itself, we won't go there, but he was reclining at Jesus' breast. All right, now, to, to just give you a little uh, background there, traditionally at a Jewish Passover meal, or really any meal where there were guests involved, what would happen is the table was arranged so that the host would be at the head of the table or maybe at the center of the table, depending on what the shape was at the time. And then the one seated directly to his left of the host would be the person of the next highest honor. All right? And then you proceeded from there around the table in a diminishing order of honor or status. The only exception to that rule was that the youngest was seated immediately to the right of the host. And this was to ensure that the youngest wouldn't always be seated the most far away and not be able to participate and learn from the elders or the wisest of the group. And John was the youngest of all the disciples. So he was seated directly to the right of Jesus. He was the youngest. And they, the, the way they ate their meals was they would recline at the table and they would lean on their left side or their left arm and then they would use their right hand to, to eat the food. And their legs would be spread out behind them. So it was kind of a fan-shaped thing around the whole table. So, and, and so John, being the youngest, sits on Jesus' right. He leans to the left, and he is right next to Jesus' breast, as the Bible states. All right? And Peter is at a distance, and Jesus is saying this, and he doesn't hear it real well. And so he motions to John, the, the disciple closest. He says, well, ask him who he's talking about. Asking him. So John asks him. And Jesus, in order to fulfill the scripture and the prophecy, he says, the one who I dip the morsel in and give it to, he's the one. And notice Judas is right on his left. That is the place of honor. Jesus, we don't know whether Judas sat there on his own because he just wanted to be honored or whether Jesus had him sit there on, uh, on purpose. But anyway, he says, whoever I dip the morsel and give it to, that's the one. So he does that. And all of a sudden, Jesus, or Judas is exposed. And John says in verse 26 and 27, as soon as Jesus dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas, it was at that moment 
that Satan entered Judas. And the language there that is used suggests that Satan physically indwelled Judas. It's as if Satan was, he hadn't done it up to this point, it was as if Satan was waiting for the perfect moment to, to do his deed. And I'm, I'm wondering whether when Jesus says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly, I wonder if he was talking to Judas or he was talking to Satan. But, because this is one of only two times in all the whole Bible where it says Satan actually physically indwelled something. Usually he used his, his minions to do that, the demons and so forth. The other one, by the way, is in the book of Revelation where it says he indwelled the Antichrist, right? In fact, if you read Matthew's account of this Last Supper, Judas, he says that Judas was really, he was actually surprised that he was the one to be, he, he, he was surprised to learn that he was the one that was going to do it. That's what it says in Matthew's gospel. Well, maybe, maybe Judas was just feigning surprise there to cover his tracks. We don't know, or perhaps, perhaps his role as the betrayer really wasn't formed in his heart at the time, and it took the indwelling of Satan to do it, to get him to actually follow through on the act itself. We don't know that. But either way, Judas was susceptible to Satan's intervention. So when you consider all these things, one can only speculate about Judas's motivations. Judas probably started out well as a follower of Jesus. I mean, he probably started good. But he never went, and this is, this is important, he never went beyond following Jesus in the flesh. He never went beyond following Jesus in the flesh. And he went as far as the flesh could take him. Maybe he was drawn in initially by the notoriety of Jesus. Maybe he was flattered to be chosen, to be part of an elite group. And he remained committed as long as it benefited him. I don't know, he stole a little money here and there along the way. But maybe he saw this as an opportunity to get, on the, get in on the ground floor of something, you know, something new, something exciting. Maybe it was the, the, the beginning of the next government or the next king. So to, G, to Judas, his commitment to Jesus was physical, not spiritual. His motivations were from the flesh. And before we get too hard on Judas, I think it's safe to say that our churches are full of people like that, that follow Jesus just as far as the flesh will take them. I think that's true. They claim to be followers of Jesus because it suits them. It provides a sense of belonging or acceptance where they re- that they receive from others, or maybe it's a sense of prestige or position if they get involved in the leadership of the church. But it's of the flesh. It's not of the spirit. And because of that, 
we're easily susceptible to temptation and to betrayal. And speaking of betrayal, I want to point out to you that Jesus was not the only disciple that betrayed Jesus that night. He was not the only one. Peter denied him three times. Is that a form of betrayal? The rest of the disciples, save for John, they ran for cover. You know, betrayal can come in many forms, and it can be motivated by many things, especially by fear, and that's what we see in many of the disciples. Fear either personal, fear of personal harm, or professional, or societal, where we deny Jesus over the fear of how we're going to be received either from our friends or our family or our people that we work with, and especially in today's cancel culture. So we just keep our mouth shut about Jesus. Oh, we'll be his followers privately or maybe at church where it's safe. But when we get out into the public, we deny him. Or at best, we just keep him hidden. Is that betrayal? You know, we can betray him for a lot of reasons. We can betray him for material gain. Because if we don't compromise what we know about Jesus, what, what, what we know that God requires of us, just so we could get ahead, because it might hurt our prospects, whether it has to do with prestige or power or position, or material gain? How about Thomas? You remember Thomas? Thomas wouldn't believe until he had proof. Sometimes I think we can betray Jesus by putting him to the test, where we dictate the terms by which we will accept him. And I often ask this question of people, What kind of God will you accept? You know, I want to make a, I want to tell you something, folks. God is the most intimate participant in all the events of your life. Did you hear that? God is the most intimate participant in all the events of your life. God is in the details of your life. Even this morning, when you got up and you got ready to come to church and you did all your pre, whatever you do, whatever your routine is in the morning, God was in every one of those details. He's in your details right now. And when you leave here, you get in your cars and you go, he'll be in the details of your day every single day. God is in the details. Even in your denials, even in your betrayals, God is there in the details. You know, as I look back on my life, all the years I have claimed to be a follower of Jesus, there have been countless times when God has jerked my chain, and I've heard that cock crow just like Peter. 
countless times. And you know something? I thank God for that. I thank God for that because that's the difference, friends. That's what separates Judas from all the other disciples. The other disciples all returned to Jesus in the spirit of repentance. And Judas didn't. My guess is all of the disciples were very sorry about the way they acted that night. Whether they ran away, whether they they denied him, I'm sure they were all sorry about the way they acted. And especially in the days following. But they all returned to Jesus to receive forgiveness. Judas didn't. And the Bible tells us that Judas was sorry for what he had done. He was, I mean, the pain of his remorse and his regret and the guilt that just filled him was just intolerable. He couldn't deal with it. So what did he do? He hanged himself just to end it. He never came back to Jesus. So let me close with this. And if you haven't heard anything else I've said, I hope you hear this. Being sorry for your sin is not enough. Being sorry for your sin is not enough. History is replete with people who on their deathbeds had great regret and remorse over how they've lived or what they'd done or how they acted, and yet they die in their guilt. Being sorry for your sin is not enough. So let me close with this. I want to read to you a passage from 2 Corinthians. This is a very powerful verse one that I have found to be great comfort in my life. But it's true, so let me read it to you. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Let me read that again. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But then it goes on, and this is what it says at the end, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world produces death. Those two ideas basically describe what goes on with the disciples and with Judas. Let me read it one more time. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. It's a good verse to remember when you hear the cock crow. He who has ears, let him hear. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we, I give you thanks, Lord, for the way you put roosters in my path. For the way, you know, we call that conviction of the Holy Spirit, but it's really, 
it's really a rooster in my path, and I thank you for the way you put them there. That brings me to a righteous repentance, and that my guilt is cleansed. I pray that I pray that that will continue to the last of my days. And I ask it for all these here too. And I pray it in your name, Lord.